Welcome to the Providence Church Podcast. We begin the new year with a series about worship. Over the next four weeks, we'll discuss what worship is, what it looks like, and how we can worship in our everyday lives. We begin with a sermon about worship being a response to God's glory. Here's Pastor Dwight. I was thinking this week, we're, we're getting ready to talk about some foundations. And I don't know how many, it's still football season. Ah, it's still football season. Maybe, maybe. Uh, but anyway, if you know, the name Vince Lombardi, does that ring a bell to some of you? Uh, the, the Super Bowl trophy is named after Vince Lombardi, the legendary Packer coach that won the first two Super Bowls. And Vince Lombardi, uh, coaching annals of history, something that happened that I, that I heard about anyway was that Vince Lombardi was the kind of coach that he'd get all his players together, first day of camp, first day of practice, summertime, and his, his foundational approach was, gentlemen, this is a football. I mean, these are guys that played football all their lives through, you know, growing up, high school ball, college ball. Now they're in the pros. And he wants them to know, hey, it, this, where we started today, this, oh, this is a football. All right, we're going back to the foundations. And I'm going to teach you how to block. I'm going to teach you how to tackle. We're going to, we're going to go over the foundational things about what it means to play football. Obviously, Hall of Fame coach. Um, but this morning, you know, we're, we are actually, one of the things that we're going to do is we look at the, the new year and we thought, we thought, let's start the year looking at what is the heart of worship. What are, what are the found, what's the foundational, what is our foundations of worship? What does that mean for us? Because we often tend to get bogged down with the wrong thing when it comes to worship. Now, I know we're, and we're, over the course of this next month, we're going to talk together about these things. And we can talk about personal worship. And many of you have a personal worship approach, style, commitment, whether it's your devotions, your prayer time, your Bible reading. Maybe you put on songs around your house or in your car. And so you're worshiping God, every, we hope, every day in some way. But there's also, of course, as we understand, we come in this morning and corporately we're together. We've gathered together in this place to connect, to encounter uh, the living God, to, to meet him in this place. And so a lot of times we do get, we tend to get off track a little bit when it comes to corporate worship. And we get bogged down on uh, song choices. And some, peop some people love the old hymns that I grew up with, that you, some of you grew up with. And some of you like the more contemporary songs. And some of you like, I like the piano. And some of you, I like guitars and drums. And some of you, where's the organ, right? Remember that, th that thing, right? Uh, so a lot of, lot of things that we have in our hearts about worship that are preferences to us. And sometimes we get caught in that. Or a style of worship. Is it traditional? Is it contemporary? Or a form. So there is what is called a high church, which is a, a lot of creeds. Uh, my, it's interesting, my kids, uh, two of my girls went to Grove City College. One of them, Kenzie's still a junior there. They uh, found a, a local church in that community. And it's kind of a, I don't know if it's Episcopalian, Anglican type. It's a higher church, high Presbyterian, I guess you'd say. And they, they recite the Disciples' Creed, the Apostles' Creed uh, every week. And the Nicene Creed. And they do communion almost every week. And we're going to do communion this morning. Later, we do that quarterly here at Providence. But 
Uh, that's something that surprised me as a dad. I got some girls that are up for high church. Uh, you know, where it's more formalized, more structured. And then there's what we call low church, which is more spontaneous, more simple, uh, where we, we, we have this understanding of we sing and we pray. And in fact, in the scriptures, you know, someone brought a, a hymn, someone brought a song, someone brought a word of testimony, someone brought a word, word of scripture, and they brought it together. And so that, all the way down to that level of what we would call low church. So form's a part of it. Um, honestly, so much of it, so much of the, the things that the stuff that people fight over comes down to preferences. And you hear the, the word worship wars, and churches have divided over worship, public worship, and what it should look like. But honestly, if the Bible is being taught, the Bible is being preached, and the gospel is being advanced front and center as the mission of Jesus Christ on the earth, then all the other stuff, honestly, is comes down to what do you like? What don't you like? I mean, and that's really not necessarily a biblical issue, but a, a, a preference, you know, a, an opinion, a thought, personality. So, so here's the question we start with this morning. Why do you worship? Why, and, and, and here, I guess we'll, we'll get to the, even to the corporate level. Why go to church? Why, come, why, why spend your Sunday morning here? as many of you do. And so for some, I think, if we think about why do I go to church? Well, it's a habit. Is it a habit? Where I go, that's what I do. It's Sunday and we get up, we go to church. We, get the kid, we try to get the kids ready on time. We try to get out the door on time. We try to get our, if we get breakfast or you know, Pop-Tart or whatever out the door, but this is, this, it's a habit. I'm used, to, I'm used to going to church. That's what I've done. Or for others, maybe I'm checking off the box. And so there's some things I know I, as a good Christian, there's some things I need to do, some things that I should do, and going to church is one of those, so I make sure I check off that box. Um, for others, it might be, hey, I want to be with friends. And actually, that's a pretty good reason, because we all need friends who are pursuing God. So I would say, you know, in terms of the fellowship, the dynamic of needing each other, of wanting to encourage each other, pray for each other, be involved in each other's lives, support each other, that's a really good reason. But so some, for some of us, hey, I want to go and be with my friends. Um, for, for others, it might be, I want, a, I want to experience a certain feeling. When I show up for church, when I show up for worship, I'm looking for a certain feeling that makes me know I'm closer to God or that I'm encountering God or that I might be hearing from God. And sometimes we attach that to a feeling. Or for some others, it might be I come to church, I worship because I want something from God. I'm in a crisis or a trial or I'm going through suffering and I need an answer. I, 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 need, I need some comfort. I need something. I need something from God. I'm not always sure what I need from God, but I know I need something from God. And that's actually also an interesting commitment. But the, the, the part of this is, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, in my, so I'm 50 plus. Let's just say that. That's a good number, 50 plus. Um, over the course of my life, I've probably, if, even if it's now 50, 50 
services a year. That's 50 Sunday mornings a year. That's probably minimal for a guy who grew, when I grew up, it was Sunday morning and Sunday night services. So you add that. So do, start doing the math. So 50 services a year, right? Let's just minimize that. So you did 10 years, you have 500 services. 20 years, 1,000 services. 30 years, 1,500 services. Am I doing the math right? 40 years, 2,000 services. 50 or 45. I'm, I'm over 3,000 worship services. That revival meetings, other special meetings. That when I went to seminary, chapel services. Over 3,000 worship services. That's just me. Some of, you have been, some of you have been to more. Some of you have been to less, right? But here's the thing. I was thinking about how important it is. When we come to worship, one of the, thing, one of the things that's happening, and, and you don't even know it, but, but this, is, this is part of what God is doing, is, he is we are building a relationship with him through that continuity. We are, we, are, we are building a foundation. We are growing a relationship by continually coming into his presence. So the repetition of coming into his presence and engaging from the heart level, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, engaging with our minds, bringing our whole selves to that, that's a part of how you and I build a relationship with the living God. Now, it doesn't just happen corporately. It does happen personally. It does happen in your Bible reading, private, quiet time with God. It does happen beside your bed when you're kneeling for prayer. It happens in your living room when you're with, spending time with the Lord, in the car, listening to a worship. It's, it's all the time. But the commitment to gather is so essential because you, you and I are in the, God is in the process of building a relationship, developing, growing a relationship that process, part of that work. So that, the question, why do we worship, is what is going to drive us this morning. And there are many reasons why we worship, but there's two primary from the scriptures. And so if you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 4 is where we're headed this morning. Firstly, there's two, two key passages here, but the back of the book, Revelation chapter 4. And this is, of course, John. He's on the island of Patmos. He has been exiled. And while he's exiled, an angel of the Lord comes to him and speaks to him. about Jesus himself comes to him and speaks to him about what is to come. And he also gives him a picture after the first couple of chapters, second chapter, third chapter are the letters to the churches, the seven letters to the churches, and then a chapter four this picture of what's happening around the throne room in heaven. So chapter 4, verse 1. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, was like a trumpet. And it said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And we'll talk more about these details later. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, the crystal sea. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is now and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Why do we worship? The very first thing in terms of the heart of worship, as we're talking about this, is that we worship because of who he is. Number one, foundational, out-of-the-gate commitment. Why do we gather? Why do we personally spend time honoring him, praising him, blessing him, glorifying him, exalting him. Why? Because he is worthy because of who he is. This amazing scene. It is a scene filled with breathtaking, I'll use the word majesty. We don't use the word majesty a lot. Majesty means greatness, sovereignty, awesome, power. I mean, we're, we're a long way from the time of the kings I think that probably the most recent example of majesty would have been what happened when Queen Elizabeth died. Uh, was that this past year? Am I, am I right on that? And they had the state funeral. And if you, I tuned in because, like, we don't see a lot of majesty in our uh, political process, do we? In fact, just the opposite usually. But they had, they had this, the, the carriages and the horses, and they had the guards and the, the soldiers and, and the carriage and flowers and crowns and glitter and gold and wow, wow, so amazing, majesty, wow. The king, here, here's the picture. The king of all creation is seated on his throne, and it is an image of greatness and splendor unlike anything else. In fact, the, word, the, the, the wording there, uh, he uses the, John's, what he sees is like, Jas like Jasper. Again, uh, this is, I'm giving, he says, I'm giving words to something that's hard to describe, so it's like, like this. Jasper was the, the, the finest form of diamonds. I was looking at, doing a little research this week on Jasper, the finest form of a diamond. And Cornelia, Cornelia was one of the stones of the king's. It was an extravagant color. It was rich red. And it, it actually uh, was attached to life. 
and represented life and energy. So coming from the throne of God, as you can imagine, is this amazing source of life and energy. In fact, all life comes from him. And so here, here's John seeing this amazing. And so here's this uh, brilliant, I mean, these, these stones that are unlike anything else. And then around the throne is this rainbow. And he says it has the appearance of an emerald. So what, a, a, a really dark green. What's, what's Ireland called? The Emerald Isle, right? So think about the darkest, beautiful, lush green of the summertime. And then this rainbow that had the appearance and, and what happens, I know, I don't know about if you're like me, but most people I know, when they see a rainbow, like if, you, if you're driving down the road, you see a rainbow, what, whoa, like my head turns. If I'm at home and I see a rainbow after a storm, I'm out the window, out the porch. Oh, let me see that. I mean, I, I don't take that for granted. That's, that's part of God's covenant promise. The rainbow came, right? So the rainbow is significant. And here's, here's the throne of God with this amazing rich red, this diamond, red energy, power. And then there's a rainbow around it that has this the, like an emerald appearance. And our hearts, are, our eyes go, wow, the wonder of a rainbow. And so this majesty of God. And so, you know, when we approach majesty, what, what, what is, the, what is the, the normal protocol when you approach majesty? It's kneeling. We kneel before the throne. You know, when the king sat on the throne or the queen sat on the throne and the subjects came before the majesty of the, of the ruler, what did they do? They bowed before their sovereign. So here he is seated on his throne with all this glory surrounding it. In fact, around the, the throne were more thrones, 24 thrones, and in fact, many people believe that those thrones represent the unity of God's people. Old Testament, 12 thrones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. New Testament, new covenant, 12 apostles. Jesus chose 12 to follow him. And he said, this is now my, the new covenant that God is doing through me, through my blood. And so the fullness of the Old Testament, the fullness of the New Testament brought together in the throne room of heaven, 24 thrones, 12 elders, 12 from the tribes, 12 from the apostles, as it were. Beyond all that, in verse 5, from the, th from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, a good, heavy thunderstorm will get you up at night. It does me. Like, I mean, I'm a pretty good sleeper, but if I hear and if the lightning's flashing outside the window, you're, you happen to roll over and catch it. It's like, whoa. And if you're driving down a road and you see a flash of lightning, wow, powerful, scary, actually. You don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Like, you don't want to be standing there when it hits the ground, right? So lightning is powerful, it's, and it's, it's, wow, glorious in so many ways. And so here's around the throne the flashes of lightning and the, the peals of thunder Mm. And then there are seven torches of fire representing the seven spirits of God. Now, my understanding of that is, again, seven is a significant number in the Scripture. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number of fullness. Seven is a perfect number in the Bible. And so this, these torches 
as I've read and studied this, represent the Holy Spirit of God. God doesn't have seven different spirits. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Those seven torches represent the manifestation of the one Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, that also, again, surrounding the throne. Before the throne is the sheer beauty and the brilliance of the crystal sea. I know how many of you love to get to the ocean in the summer. You love going to the beach. Part of it is you just love looking out at that amazing body of water. I mean, it's like, wow. Now the waves roll in and it's powerful and beautiful. But something about water, right? So here, this sea before the throne, if you will, the throne sea. Before the throne is the, the, a, a sea that is so clear, it is as if it, it, is if it is made of crystal. I want to see that. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Wow, the crystals. People sing about it, right? But here's, here it is, right, right in front of the throne. The, this crystal, it's, it's perfect and it's captivating. That's what the crystals see. It's captivating. Water captivates us. And crystal, clear. And then all of creation, if you will, surrounds the throne. There are four living creatures. And Again, four is the number of creation in the scriptures. And there are, these four creatures represent different parts of creation. So the lion represents the wild animals, the wild beast that God created, the wildness of creation. So there's the lion around the throne. There also is the ox, which is the domesticated animals. Now, we know that we have animals that go on the farm, and we milk them and grow them and raise them. And so there are domesticated animals also included in this picture. And then there is also the face of a man, the human beings, us, actually the, the crowning glory of God's creation. And he created all things in those first six days. The last thing he made was, was us, was man, woman, out of man. And, he, and he, he created us in his image. And so there man is around the throne of God, humanity. And then the eagle the birds of the air are also, right? the, 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 the glory of the eagle, this amazing flying creature that also surrounds the throne. And notice they are full of, of eyes all around and within. That's a kind of a, isn't that an eye? Like when I first, years ago, I was like, that's a weird looking picture. Thinking about eyes, but if you think about the symbolism of that, when they have eyes all around, what do they do? They see everything. What do we know about God? He sees everything. There is nothing hidden from his eyes. He, and, and so, in, and biblically, what's true too is when you see, you can know. So, we know that God has all knowledge. There's nothing he does not know. And so, again, these eyes are very important in the representation of the, the, the awesomeness of God, the, the complete knowledge that God has surrounding that throne, and all these eyes that see and are able to know. Mm, nothing hidden. Mm. What does this entire scene do? All of it, all that we just talked about, the lightning and the rainbow and the glory of the stones and all the creation, the thrones and the Holy Spirit, all of it, all of it is declaring God's greatness, his majesty, his 
power, his glory, his honor, all of it. And they all cry, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. That's the chant, the, 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 the praise of heaven. Oh, there's only one attribute of God that's ever raised to the third degree of repetition. In fact, when we want to emphasize something in English, we do a lot of things. When you want to emphasize something and you're writing something, you might underline it. You might italicize it. You might boldface it. You might put quotation marks around it. You might put an exclamation point on the end of it because you want to emphasize something. And that's how we do that in our English language. But in the Jewish language, in the Hebrew language, when the Jews wanted to emphasize something, uh, they did it through repetition. Okay? So Jesus, when he said, when he was teaching, there were times when he wanted his disciples to, I mean, guys, don't miss this. So he would say, truly, truly, I say unto you. Or if you have old King James, verily, verily. In other words, Jesus would stop and he wanted to highlight a certain truth. And so he would emphasize it by repeating that phrase, truly, truly. It was a form of, I want you to catch this. I don't want you to miss this. There is only one attribute of God raised to the third degree of repetition in the scriptures. Holy, holy, holy. That is to say, God, you are set apart. There is no one like you. You are a cut apart. You are a cut above. You are holy, unlike anybody else. There is no one like you in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And that I love that phrasing because it's like everything. Like, think about heaven up there. No, no one like you there. No one like you here. No one like you. If there is an under the earth, no one's like you there either. There's no one like you anywhere. And that gets us to the declaration of why we worship in verse 11. Because as they are around that throne, uh, they say, He, you are worthy. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. He is worthy. And the old English word, there's an old English word that uh, we get worship from. It's the word worthship. Worthship. And worthship means showing or displaying the worth of God. And so whenever we worship, that's what we're doing. So if you are privately in the woods taking a walk in the favorite, your favorite part of creation and you're having an encounter with God and you're acknowledging him as your Lord and your Savior and you're declaring there's no one like you, you might be doing it out loud. You might be doing it quietly in your heart. You might be marveling at the beauty of creation around you and you're saying, God, this is all you. You are, you are ascribing worth to God. Do that in the woods. You can do that at the ocean. Do that in your back deck. Do that in your car. I was in the, my corner of my room this morning, early this morning, and had my light on and was going, as I always do on Sunday morning, going through my message and praying before I could get in here. And I was just having some quiet prayer time and the house was quiet. And I was like, God, you're worthy. God, you're worthy. God, you're worthy. And it was just like an echo in my heart. And I was, it was just me. But in that moment, I was describing God, you are worth you are worth everything, and you are worth my praise right now in this moment when no one else is around but me and you, you are worth it. And so that's a part of what we do privately. It's also what we do publicly when we're gathered together as the church, when we are, when we are bringing our 
our praise, when we're bringing our prayers, when we're singing, when we're preaching, when we're testifying uh, to, to one another about what God has done in our lives. Hey, would you know, this is what God did this week in my life. This is what God's been doing in my life this past month. In the season I'm in right now, this is what God is up to. And we share that with each other, whether we're in a small group, a Sunday school, a relationship, a friendship, however that works. But we testify. And we're showing in those moments, we're showing and displaying the worth of God. That's what we're doing. God, you are worthy. Bob Coughlin, who's a worship leader, and a pastor said this, in truth, we are never not worshiping. At any given moment, we are directing our affections, our attention, and allegiance either to the one true God or to the idols that can never satisfy, comfort, or rescue us. I put that note, that quote in your outline this morning because it's such a powerful quote. We, we are never not worshiping. In fact, we, we are created, we are designed to worship. It is built within us. We will worship. The question is, what will we worship? Who will we worship? That's the only question. We're going to worship because God made us to worship. And so the, our, 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 our life's pursuit is, will we worship him or we worship someone else? Worship ourselves? Worship a certain th- uh, an object? A, a t- what, what are we going to worship? In the day-to-day trenches of living, there is actually no such thing as atheism because everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship or who to worship. And what we know about God is that his worth is infinite. So true worship is valuing or treasuring it's a valuing or treasuring of God above all things. To say and to know in our hearts, there is nothing greater, there is nothing more worthy of my heart than you. That's where it comes down to. That other people, as much as we love other people, they're not worthy of my worship. I'm going to love them. I'm going to invest in them. I'm going to care for them. If I have a spouse, if I have a child, if I have my family, my friends, whoever, people in this community, yes, 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 a thousand times yes. But no human being is worthy of our worship, of the devotion of our hearts. Even your favorite football team, I like these guys. I get a lot, yeah, I get a lot of pleasure you know, screaming at the television for three hours on a Sunday or a Saturday afternoon. But at the end of the day, when the game's over, okay, we're moving on. I got bigger things. I got more important things than a football game. I love, and I love my team. And so do you. Many of you love your team. But at the end of the day, there's, there's bigger fish, right? Wow. Treasuring or valuing God above all things, above money, above our jobs, above our hobbies, above our passions, whatever in our life that where we, we tend to set our affections, our allegiance toward, what are those things? God, you are worthy. You're, you're greater than. You're more than. You're above those things. And so, Lord, help me to understand what it means to have my heart set on you, right? And that's the, the heart behind worship. Now, the second thing, and this is where we'll drive towards the the table this morning. Why do we worship? 
We also worship because of what he has done. We worship him for who he is, and that picture in Revelation 4 helps us to see who he is, the, the splendor, the majesty, the glory of who he is, as heaven even now is, is that's what's happening in heaven even now. But also, why do we worship? Because of what he has done. First John chapter 4, if you have, just flip a couple pages back. You're not far off if you're still in Revelation. So the fourth chapter of 1 John, and verse 7 and following. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, was made known among us. Why? How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice, your version might say. Here's the game changer. The game changer is not only do we have this amazing, awesome, one-of-a-kind king of creation who is seated on his throne, receiving worship forever and ever and ever. It's not only do we have that, but he is a king who, 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 who keeps everything going by the power of his will. But that king came for us. You see, that's what moves us to this. That's what moves you to Jesus Christ because he sent his son for you and for me. And why did he send his son? He sent his son to rescue us, to save us, to deliver us out of his love for us. His love moved him to send his son. So he, God is personally invested in bringing you life. That's what verse 9 says, right? God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. He wants us to experience abundant, eternal life. I talked about this last month, Zoe life, quality of life, well beyond biological life, well beyond suke life, which is the knowledge of the mind. We have an inner life, but the quality of eternal life, abundant, knowing him, being connected to him. That's why he sent his son so that we could have life and have it forever with him in a place called heaven to be able to experience that forever. In the truest sense, worship is our response to God's love and mercy. Why are we here this morning? Because God has loved us. God has been merciful to us. When we did not deserve anything, he came for us. When we were lost and dead in our sins, the Bible said he sent his son to rescue us to redeem us, to purchase us back as his own. He is invested in you. He's invested in me personally. That's why we come. 1 John 4, verse 19. We love, why? Because he first loved us. He is the initiator. He broke through. When we were dead in our sins, when we were lost, when we were without, without hope, here comes Jesus. We just celebrated Christmas. He came 
in the form of a baby who grew up in a carpenter, born in a manger in a stable, grew up in a carpenter shop in a humble little back part of a place called Nazareth in the Middle East. And then God released him publicly to teach and to heal and to declare the kingdom of God and then ultimately to give his life on a cross for you and for me and for all who would believe to rescue us from our sin. Here's the thing. When you are on the receiving end of being loved well, when you are loved sacrificially, what happens in your heart? A lot of things happen in your heart. When you are loved well, a lot of things happen in your heart. One of those things that happens is you typically want to move closer to that person. When someone has laid their life down for you, someone has invested in you, someone has cared for you, someone has provided for you, someone has blessed you, has touched you, has helped you, you, you are naturally, by the love in your heart, drawn to want to spend time to be closer to that person. And so here we are this past year, Heather and I working through this together. A couple years ago, when I was in a, a place and I wasn't doing well, feeling overwhelmed and tired and fatigued and needed some time, there was my wife beside me, loving me, helping me, praying for me, encouraging me every day. So when it's her turn this summer and even now, I'm there for her and we're, we do it together, right? So there's something about when you are loved, you are drawn to want to be closer to that person. That wow. The response is wow. They did that for me. And there's a gratitude that wells up in our hearts. There's a joy. There's praise. Our hearts are enlarged. And so we say about God, I can't thank him enough. I spend my life giving back I spend my life giving back to him. What am I devoted to? I'm giving back to God because he has poured it all out, all of it out for me. I can't give you enough. And he doesn't want anything from me. He wants my heart. He wants my heart. He wants your heart. That's what this is about. Part of worship is drawing near to God. And so we talk about our response in fact, I, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to just read a couple verses out of Hebrews chapter 10. We're almost finished, but I wanted to catch these couple verses because it really speaks to what I just talked about. Hebrews 10, verses 18 and following. Verses 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, what's it say, verse 22? Let us draw near. Let us come close. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that is capital D, the day of his coming again, the day of his return, as you see that day approaching. So the Bible is very clear here in Hebrews 10. 
part of what it means for us to come to worship publicly even together. Is he says, don't forsake meeting together. Do it. Make, it. make it a habit. Make it a part of your rhythm, a, a, a part of your commitment to living life, that you're gathering with other believers who are also pursuing Jesus Christ because you can, because you have access now, because you've been brought near to him through the blood of his son. The body, we're going to have this in a minute, the, the bread, the cup, that we have access to the living God because of what Jesus did for us. Now we can come near. Now we can draw close because he, in his love, came for us. And when someone loves you so well and so courageously and sacrificially, we are drawn, we want to spend time closer to them. And so that's how it is with the living God. He wants us to draw near to him, to be close to him. Mm. What is that? What is, what is worship? And I'm going to, we're going to finish with this, this, this question. What, what do we talk about worship being a response? What does that response look like? Okay. Well, it, it looks like this part of it. Corporately, we come together and we sing and singing is a big part. And we pray and we preach and we give testimonies, as I mentioned before, and we encourage each other. So that's a part of what this response looks like, what we're doing right now. It also, part of our worship is actually serving other people. It's actually meeting the needs of others through the love of Christ in us. So because Jesus has served me, I want to serve other people. I want to, I want to help other people. And so some of you who make meals, or you clean for someone, or you mow grass, or you help the sick, or you help people move and pack up the truck, or you use your gifts to build up others in this body and you teach and you do on the worship team and you help with the kids or you work for Awana or you go on a mission trip or you help with the youth or you help with the worship team or whatever you do in using your gifts, you're helping to serve the body and building up others in Christ. That's a part of your worship. Not the only part of your worship, but an important part of your worship is serving, using the gifts God has given you and the pouring out your heart for others. Work is also worship. Now, I know you don't think that on Monday morning when the alarm goes off or you crawl out of bed and go, oh, man, I got to do this again, right? But work, how I conduct myself day in and day out is a part of our worship. How I treat other people on the job is a part of my worship. Will I love them like God loves me? Will I love them consistently? Will I love them like Christ does? And will I do my job with my whole heart? Will I give it everything I've got while I'm on, that, on, the, on the floor of that thing, getting that? Will I do it well to the best of my ability to honor God with my work? Competing for God's glory also is a part of our worship. We were able to get back to our daughter Riley played soccer for Grove City College, and, and I was just back there this fall for a homecoming thing with our other daughter, Kenzie, and we saw the women's game, or saw the men's game, Kenzie has a boyfriend, and the boyfriend was playing, so we were there to scout out the boyfriend. Uh huh. And then the girls' team, the girls' team came up, and I knew know the coach from, so I was talking to the coach a little bit, and the girls were standing there, and I noticed again they have it on their shirts like they did, A O one, audience of one, A O the number one, and they said this is who we are playing for. Like we're playing for each other, we're playing for our school, but we are ultimately playing for God. We're, an, we're, playing, for an, we're playing for an audience of one. 
And so that's a part of their team culture. We're competing for God's glory. How do you worship? How's your response? Prayer is a part of it. Your time with God, your, your personal worship is a part of it. Giving is a part of your worship. When we give, we are expressing our trust in God to care for our needs, right? I, I don't, God, you've given all this belongs to you. And so here's a portion of what you have blessed me with. And I give it to you. And as I give it to you, I'm declaring you are able to meet my needs. I don't need 100% of everything that you have poured out of my life because it all belongs to you. And so here, I give this back to you as a way for me to acknowledge that you are the meter of my needs. That you're the one who's going to take care of me. You're the one who's going to bring daily bread tomorrow when I need it. It'll be there because you're faithful. And so I can give this with a heart of worship, knowing that you are the one who supplies. And then the last thing here is obedience. <laughs> this could be a whole sermon. It won't be today, but it could be a whole sermon. Obedience as, a, as an act of worship. Because Saul said to Sam, excuse me, Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul didn't get, I'm not going to go into a whole story, but the, the king missed it. He didn't, he didn't follow through on God's instructions. He didn't completely wipe out the enemy. He, he took some of the spoil and spared the king, and it, dis, it, dis, it displeased God greatly. In fact, it cost him the throne. And so our obedience demonstrates our love for God. You can say you love God, you can shout it from the mountaintops. You can sing it from your pew. You can, you can tell people in the grocery store, I love God, I love God, I love God. But what will tell people that you love God and what will show God that you love God is will I obey you? Will I move with you? Will I follow you? Will I trust you? That's how it gets proven. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So we worship God when we do whatever it is that we do. And whatever you do, Paul said, Colossians 3.17, whether it is in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you for listening to our latest sermon. Join us throughout January as we continue to explore worship. In the meantime, connect with us online. Visit our website at provchurch.net or check out our Facebook at Prof Church Life. Until next time. 